This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 4 Chapter 3b The Progressive This great game of catching revolutionists snapping, of catching the unconventional people in conventional poses, of outmarching and outmaneuvering progressives till they felt like conservatives, of undermining the minds of nihilists till they felt like the House of Lords. This great game of dishing the anarchists continued for some time to be his most effective business. It would be untrue to say that he was a cynic. He was never a cynic, for that implies a certain corrupt fatigue about human affairs, whereas he was vibrating with virtue and energy. Nor would it be fair to call him even a skeptic, for that implies a dogma of hopelessness and definite belief in unbelief. But it would be strictly just to describe him at this time, at any rate, as a merely destructive person. He was one whose main business was, in his own view, the pricking of illusions, the stripping away of disguises, and even the destruction of ideals. He was a sort of anti-confectioner whose whole business it was to take the guilt off the gingerbread. Now I have no particular objection to people who take the guilt off the gingerbread, if only for this excellent reason, that I am much fonder of gingerbread than I am of guilt. But there are some objections to this task when it becomes a crusade or an obsession. One of them is this, that people who have really scraped the guilt off gingerbread generally waste the rest of their lives in attempting to scrape the guilt off gigantic lumps of gold. Such, too, has often been the case of Shaw. He can, if he likes, scrape the romance off the armaments of Europe, or the party system of Great Britain. But he cannot scrape the romance off love or military valor, because it is all romance, and three thousand miles thick. It cannot, I think, be denied that much of Bernard Shaw's splendid mental energy has been wasted in this weary business of gnawing at the necessary pillars of all possible society. But it would be grossly unfair to indicate that even in his first and most destructive stage he uttered nothing except these accidental, if arresting, negations. He threw his whole genius heavily into the scale in favor of two positive projects, or causes of the period. When we have stated these, we have really stated the full intellectual equipment with which he started his literary life. I have said that Shaw was on the insurgent side in everything, but in the case of these two important convictions he exercised a solid power of choice. When he first went to London, he mixed with every kind of revolutionary society and met every kind of person except the ordinary person. He knew everybody, so to speak, except everybody. He was more than once a momentary apparition among the respectable atheists. He knew Bradlaugh and spoke on the platforms of that hall of science in which very simple and sincere masses of men used to hail with shouts of joy the assurance that they were not immortal. 
He retains to this day something of the noise and narrowness of that room, as, for instance, when he says that it is contemptible to have a craving for eternal life. This prejudice remains in direct opposition to all his present opinions, which are all to the effect that it is glorious to desire power, consciousness, and vitality, even for oneself. But this old secularist tag, that it is selfish to save one's soul, remains with him long after he has practically glorified selfishness. It is a relic of those chaotic early days, and just as he mingled with the atheists, he mingled with the anarchists, who were in the eighties a much more formidable body than now, disputing with the socialists on almost equal terms the claim to be the true heirs of the revolution. Shaw still talks entertainingly about this group. As far as I can make out, it was almost entirely female. When a book came out called A Girl Among the Anarchists, G.B.S. was provoked to a sort of explosive reminiscence. A girl among the anarchists, he exclaimed to his present biographer, if they had said a man among the anarchists, it would have been more of an adventure. He is ready to tell other tales of this eccentric environment, most of which does not convey an impression of very bracing atmosphere. That revolutionary society must have contained many high public ideals, but also a fair number of low private desires. And when people blame Bernard Shaw for his pitiless and prosaic coldness, his cutting refusal to reverence or admire, I think they should remember this riff-raff of lawless sentimentalism against which his common sense had to strive. All the grandiloquent comrades and all the gushing affinities, all the sweet-stuff sensuality and senseless sulking against law. If Bernard Shaw became a little too fond of throwing cold water upon prophecies or ideals, remember that he must have passed much of his youth among cosmopolitan idealists who wanted a little cold water in every sense of the word upon two of these modern crusades he concentrated and as i have said he chose them well the first was broadly what was called the humanitarian cause it did not mean the cause of humanity but rather if anything the cause of everything else at its noblest it meant a sort of mystical identification of our life with the whole life of nature so a man might wince when a snail was crushed as if his toe were trodden on. So a man might shrink when a moth shriveled as if his own hair had caught fire. Man might be a network of exquisite nerves running over the whole universe, a subtle spider's web of pity. This was a fine conception, though perhaps a somewhat severe enforcement of the theological conception of the special divinity of man. For the humanitarians certainly asked of humanity what can be asked of no other creature. No man ever required a dog to understand a cat, or expected the cow to cry for the sorrows of the nightingale. Hence this sense has been strongest in saints of a very mystical sort, such as St. Francis, who spoke of Sister Sparrow and Brother Wolf. Shaw adopted this crusade of cosmic pity but adopted it very much in his own style, severe, explanatory, and even unsympathetic. He had no affectionate impulse to say, Brother Wolf, 
At the best, he would have said, Citizen Wolf, like a sound Republican. In fact, he was full of healthy human compassion for the sufferings of animals, but in phraseology he loved to put the matter unemotionally and even harshly. I was once at a debating club at which Bernard Shaw said that he was not a humanitarian at all, but only an economist, that he merely hated to see life wasted by carelessness or cruelty. I felt inclined to get up and address to him the following lucid question. If, when you spare a herring, you are only being oikonomical, for what oikos are you being nomical? But in an average debating club I thought this question might not be quite clear. So I abandoned the idea. But certainly it is not plain for whom Bernard Shaw is economizing if he rescues a rhinoceros from an early grave. But the truth is that Shaw only took this economic pose from his hatred of appearing sentimental. If Bernard Shaw killed a dragon and rescued a princess of romance, he would try to say, I have saved a princess, with exactly the same intonation, as I have saved a shilling. He tries to turn his own heroism into a sort of superhuman thrift. He would thoroughly sympathize with that passage in his favorite dramatic author, in which the button moulder tells Peer Gint that there is a sort of cosmic housekeeping, that God himself is very economical, and that is why he is so well to do. This combination of the widest kindness and consideration with a consistent ungraciousness of tone runs through all Shaw's ethical utterance, and is nowhere more evident than in his attitude towards animals. He would waste himself to a white-haired shadow to save a shark in an aquarium from an inconvenience, or to add any little comforts to the life of a carrion crow. He would defy any laws or lose any friends to show mercy to the humblest beast or the most hidden bird. Yet I cannot recall in the whole of his works or in the whole of his conversation a single word of any tenderness or intimacy with any bird or beast. It was under the influence of this high and almost superhuman sense of duty that he became a vegetarian, and I seem to remember that when he was lying sick and near to death at the end of his Saturday Review career, he wrote a fine, fantastic article declaring that his hearse ought to be drawn by all the animals that he had not eaten. Whenever that evil day comes, there will be no need to fall back on the ranks of the brute creation. There will be no lack of men and women who owe him so much as to be glad to take the place of the animals, and the present writer for one will be glad to express his gratitude as an elephant. There is no doubt about the essential manhood and decency of Bernard Shaw's instincts in such matters, and quite apart from the vegetarian controversy, I do not doubt that the beasts also owe him much. But when we come to positive things, and passions are the only truly positive things, that obstinate doubt remains, which remains after all eulogies of Shaw, that fixed fancy sticks to the mind, that Bernard Shaw is a vegetarian more because he dislikes dead beasts than because he likes live ones. It was the same with the other great cause to which Shaw more politically, though not more publicly, committed himself. The actual English people, without representation in press or parliament, 
but faintly expressed in public houses and music halls, would connect Shaw, so far as they have heard of him, with two ideas. They would say first that he was a vegetarian, and second that he was a socialist. Like most of the impressions of the ignorant, these impressions would be on the whole very just. My only purpose here is to urge that Shaw's socialism exemplifies the same trait of temperament as his vegetarianism. This book is not concerned with Bernard Shaw as a politician or a sociologist, but as a critic and creator of drama. I will therefore end in this chapter all that I have to say about Bernard Shaw as a politician or a political philosopher. I propose here to dismiss this aspect of Shaw. Only let it be remembered, once and for all, that I am here dismissing the most important aspect of Shaw. It is as if one dismissed the sculpture of Michelangelo and went on to his sonnets. Perhaps the highest and purest thing in him is simply that he cares more for politics than for anything else, more than for art, than for philosophy. Socialism is the noblest thing for Bernard Shaw, and it is the noblest thing in him. He really desires less to win fame than to bear fruit. He is an absolute follower of that early sage who wished only to make two blades of grass grow instead of one. He is a loyal subject of Henry Quartier, who said that he only wanted every Frenchman to have a chicken in his pot on Sunday except, of course, that he would call the repast cannibalism. But Ceteris Paribus, he thinks more of that chicken than the eagle of the universal empire, and he is always ready to support the grass against the laurel. Yet by the nature of this book, the account of the most important Shaw, who is the socialist, must be also most brief. Socialism, which I am not here concerned either to attack or defend, is, as everyone knows, the proposal that all property should be nationally owned, that it may be more decently distributed. It is a proposal resting upon two principles, unimpeachable as far as they go. First, that frightful human calamities call for immediate human aid. Second, that such aid must always be collectively organized. If a ship is being wrecked, we organize a lifeboat. If a house is on fire, we organize a blanket. If half a nation is starving, we must organize work and food. That is the primary and powerful argument of the socialist, and everything it adds to it weakens it. The only possible line of protest is suggest that it is rather shocking that we have to treat a normal nation as something exceptional, like a house on fire or a shipwreck but of such things it may be necessary to speak later. The point here is that Shaw behaved towards socialism just as he behaved towards vegetarianism. He offered every reason except the emotional reason, which was the real one. When taxed in a daily news discussion with being a socialist for the obvious reason that poverty was cruel, he said this was quite wrong. It was only because poverty was wasteful he practically professed that modern society annoyed him not so much like an unrighteous kingdom, but rather like an untidy room. Everyone who knew him knew, of course, that he was full of a proper brotherly bitterness about the oppression of the poor. But here again he would not admit that he was anything but an economist. 
in thus setting his face like flint against sentimental methods of argument he undoubtedly did one great service to the causes for which he stood every vulgar anti-humanitarian every snob who wants monkeys vivisected or beggars flogged has always fallen back upon stereotyped phrases like maudlin and sentimental which indicated the humanitarian as a man in a weak condition of tears the mere personality of shaw has shattered those foolish phrases forever shaw the humanitarian was like voltaire the humanitarian a man whose satire was like steel the hardest and coolest of fighters upon whose piercing point the wretched defenders of a masculine brutality wriggled like worms in this quarrel one cannot wish shaw even an inch less contemptuous for the people who call compassion sentimentalism deserve nothing but contempt in this one does not even regret his coldness it is an honourable contrast to the blundering emotionalism of the jingoes and the flagello maniacs the truth is that the ordinary anti-humanitarian only manages to harden his heart by having already softened his head it is the reverse of sentimental to insist that a black is being burned alive for sentimentalism must be the clinging to pleasant thoughts and no one not even a higher evolutionist can think a black burned alive a pleasant thought the sentimental thing is to warm your hands at the fire while denying the existence of the black and that is the ruling habit in england as it has been the chief business of bernard shaw to show and in this the brutalitarians hate him not because he is soft but because he is hard because he is not to be softened by conventional excuses because he looks hard at a thing and hits harder some foolish fellow of the henley wibley reaction wrote that if we were to be conquerors we must be less tender and more ruthless shaw answered with really avenging irony what a light this principle throws on the defeat of the tender dervish the compassionate zulu and the morbidly humane boxer at the hands of the hardy savages of england france and germany in that sentence an idiot is obliterated and the whole story of europe told but it is immensely stiffened by its ironic form in the same way shaw washed away forever the idea that socialists were weak dreamers who said that things might be only because they wished them to be g b s in an argument with an individualist showed himself as a rule much the better economist and much the worst rhetorician in this atmosphere arose a celebrated fabian society of which he is still the leading spirit a society which answered all charges of impractical idealism by pushing both its theoretic statements and its practical negotiations to the verge of cynicism bernard shaw was the literary expert who wrote most of its pamphlets in one of them among such sections as fabian temperance reform fabian education and so on there was an entry gravely headed fabian natural science which stated that in the socialist cause light was needed more than heat 
Thus the Irish detachment and the Puritan austerity did much good to the country and to the causes for which they were embattled. But there was one thing they did not do. They did nothing for Shaw himself in the matter of his primary mistakes and his real limitation. His great defect was, and is, the lack of democratic sentiment, and there was nothing democratic either in his humanitarianism or his socialism. These new and refined faiths tended rather to make the Irishman yet more aristocratic, the Puritan yet more exclusive. To be a socialist was to look down on all the peasant owners of the earth, especially on the peasant owners of his own island. To be a vegetarian was to be a man with a strange and mysterious morality, a man who thought the good lord who roasted oxen for his vassals only less bad than the bad lord who roasted the vassals. None of these advanced views could the common people hear gladly, nor indeed was Shaw especially anxious to please the common people. It was his glory that he pitied animals like men, it was his defect that he pitied men only too much like animals. Foulon said of the democracy, let them eat grass. Shaw said, let them eat greens. He had more benevolence, but almost as much disdain. I have never had any feelings about the English working classes, he said elsewhere, except the desire to abolish them and replace them by sensible people. This is the unsympathetic side of the thing, but it had another and much nobler side, which must at least be seriously recognized before we pass on to much lighter things. Bernard Shaw is not a Democrat, but he is a splendid Republican. The nuance of difference between those terms precisely depicts him. And there is, after all, a good deal of dim democracy in England, in the sense that there is much of a blind sense of brotherhood and nowhere more than among the old-fashioned and even reactionary people. But a Republican is a rare bird, and a noble one. Shaw is a Republican in the literal and Latin sense. He cares more for the public thing than for any private thing. The interest of the state is with him a sincere thirst of the soul, as it was in the little pagan cities. Now this public passion, this clean appetite for order and equity, had fallen to a lower ebb, had more nearly disappeared altogether during Shaw's earlier epoch than at any other time. Individualism of the worst type was on the top of the wave. I mean artistic individualism, which is so much crueler, so much blinder, and so much more irrational even than commercial individualism. The decay of society was praised by artists as the decay of a corpse is praised by worms. The aesthete was all receptiveness like the flea. His only affair in this world was to feed on its facts and colors like a parasite upon blood. The ego was the all, and the praise of it was enunciated in matter and matter rhythms by poets whose helicon was absinthe and whose pegasus was the nightmare. This diseased pride was not even conscious of a public interest and would have found all political terms 
utterly tasteless and insignificant. It was no longer a question of one man, one vote, but one man, one universe. I have in my time had my fling at the Fabian Society, at the pedantry of schemes, the arrogance of experts, nor do I regret it now. But when I remember that other world against which it reared its bourgeois banner of cleanliness and common sense, I will not end this chapter without doing it decent honor. Give me the drain-pipes of the Fabians rather than the pan-pipes of the later poets. The drain-pipes have a nicer smell. Give me even that business-like benevolence that herded men like beasts rather than that exquisite art which isolated them like devils. Give me even the suppression of Zeo rather than the triumph of Salome. And if I feel such a confession to be due to those Fabians, who could hardly have been anything but experts in any society, such as Mr. Sidney Webb or Mr. Edward Pease, it is due yet more strongly to the greatest of the Fabians. Here was a man who could have enjoyed art among the artists, who could have been the wittiest of all the flaneurs, who could have made epigrams like diamonds and drunk music like wine. He has instead labored in a mill of statistics and crammed his mind with all the most dreary and the most filthy details, so that he can argue on the spur of the moment about sewing machines or sewage, about typhus fever or two-penny tubes. The usual mean theory of motives will not cover the case. It is not ambition, for he could not have been twenty times more prominent as a plausible and popular humorist. It is the real and ancient emotion of the salus populi, almost extinct in our oligarchal chaos. Nor will I, for one, as I pass on to many matters of argument or quarrel, neglect to salute a passion so implacable and so pure. The End of Section 4 The End of Chapter 3b